Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled, Not One Stone. It's based upon the lectionary readings for November 18, 2018. In 2016, American author and social activist Adrienne Marie Brown wrote the following in reference to racial injustice and the Black Lives Matter movement. Things are not getting worse. They are getting uncovered. We must hold each other tight and continue to pull back the veil. If I could distill this week's gospel reading into just a few words, I would borrow Brown's. Things are getting uncovered. Let's hold each other tight and pull back the veil. As the Gospel of Mark describes the scene, Jesus is standing in the temple courtyard with his disciples, shortly after asking them to notice a widow surrendering her last two coins to the temple treasury. Dazzled by the architectural majesty surrounding them, one of the disciples asks Jesus to notice something in return. Look, teacher, what large stones and what large buildings. According to the first century historian Josephus, the Jerusalem temple of Jesus' day was an awe-inspiring wonder. Newly reconstructed by Herod the Great, the temple's retaining walls were composed of stones 40 feet long. The temple itself occupied a platform twice as large as the Roman Forum and four times as large as the Athenian Acropolis. Herod reportedly used so much gold to cover the outside walls that anyone who gazed at them in bright sunlight risked blinding herself. Accordingly, the disciple in the story is impressed and tries to share his sense of awe with Jesus. But Jesus isn't dazzled. Instead, he responds to the disciples' remark with a question. Do you see these great buildings? Why does Jesus ask the disciple if he can see what the disciple has just invited Jesus to see? Aren't the two of them seeing the same thing? Well, no, they're not. They're not seeing the same thing at all. What the disciple sees is an intellectual marvel, yes, but it's also the biggest, boldest, and most unshakable symbol of God's presence he's capable of imagining. For him, those massive stones hold religious memory. They bolster a colonized people's identity. They offer the faithful a potent symbol of spiritual glory, pride, and worthiness. In short, what takes the disciples' breath away as he gazes at the temple is the religious certainty and permanence those glittering stones display to the world. That's what the disciple sees. But what does Jesus see? He sees ruins, rubble, destruction, fragility, not permanence, loss, not glory, change, not stasis. Not one stone will be left here upon another, Jesus tells the stunned disciple. All will be thrown down. This passage from Mark's Gospel is often described as apocalyptic. If you're like me, your cultural references for apocalypse probably include Marvel superhero movies, the Left Behind fiction series, and the Book of Revelations. When I hear the word, I think of interplanetary warfare, the four horsemen, vacant-eyed zombies lurching through decimated neighborhoods, and the wholesale nuclear destruction of the planet. But in fact, apocalypse means something quite different. An apocalypse is an unveiling, or to use Adrian Marie Brown's word again, an uncovering, a disclosure of something secret and hidden. To experience an apocalypse is to experience fresh sight, honest disclosure, accurate revelation. It is to apprehend reality as we've never apprehended it before. In this sense, what Jesus offers his disciples is an apocalyptic vision. He invites them to look beyond the grandeur of the temple and recognize that God will not suffer domestication. The temple is not the epicenter of his salvific work. God is not bound by mortar and stone. 
God exceeds every edifice, every institution, every mission statement, every strategic plan, and every symbol human beings create in his name. Moreover, God is not enslaved to superlatives. We are the ones easily seduced by the biggest, the newest, and the shiniest. Look, teacher, what large stones and what large buildings. In her sermon collection, God in Pain, Barbara Brown Taylor argues that disillusionment is essential to the Christian life. Disillusionment is literally the loss of an illusion about ourselves, about the world, about God. And while it is almost always a painful thing, it is never a bad thing to lose the lies we have mistaken for the truth. As I envision myself in the disciples' place, listening in bewilderment as Jesus pops my spiritual bubbles, here are some of the questions I'm asking. What lies and illusions do I mistake for truth? In what memories, traditions, or comfort zones do I attempt to house God? On what shiny religious edifice do I pin my hopes instead of trusting Jesus? My denomination, my church, my spiritual heritage? Why do I cling to permanence when Jesus invites me to evolve? Am I willing to sit with the fact that things fall apart? Things I love, things I built, things I cried and prayed and strived for. Can I embrace a journey of faith that includes rubble, ruin, and failure? Let us pray to God that we may be free of God, the 13th century mystic Meister Eckhart writes, implying that our conceptions of God and faith must always fall short, always fail. Let's name honestly, he says, the imposter gods we conjure because we fear the mystery who really is. Let's admit that we shape these gods in our own image, and that they serve us as much as we serve them. In other words, let's endure apocalypse so that truth will set us free. Let's dare to see what Jesus sees. Things are getting uncovered. Let's hold each other tight and pull back the veil. In the second part of the gospel story, Jesus teaches his disciples what to do and how to live when the walls come tumbling down. Contrary to what our hysteria-hungry, if-it-bleeds-it-leads culture so often encourages, Jesus insists on calm strength and generous love in the face of the apocalyptic. Don't be alarmed, he says, when truth is shaken and nations make war and impostors preach alluring gospels of fear, resentment, and hatred. Don't give in to terror. Don't despair. Don't capitalize on chaos. God is not where people often say he is. He doesn't fearmonger. He doesn't incite suspicion. He doesn't thrive on human dread. So avoid hasty, knee-jerk judgments. Be perceptive, not pious, imaginative, not immature. Make peace, choose hope, cultivate patience, and incarnate love as the world reels and changes. For me, this is the great challenge of the gospel, not simply to bear the apocalypse, but to bear it well, to bear it with the radical, self-sacrificial love Jesus models on the cross. For many of us, this has been an emotionally and spiritually exhausting week. We need look no further than the daily news to see apocalyptic images scarier than any Hollywood might produce. Here in California, thousands of acres of land are burning from massive wildfires. Entire neighborhoods have been reduced to ashes, and as one of my friends put it this morning, there is a lament rising in Gilead, and it will not quiet for some time. Elsewhere, families are mourning in the aftermath of yet another mass shooting, or starving in the shadow of relentless war, or continuing to recover from hurricane damage, or suffering racial or sexual violence, or attempting to cross a national border because the horrors they leave behind are worse than the dangers that lie ahead. In this troubling context, it is easy to despair, or to grow numb, or to let exhaustion win. But it's precisely now, now when the world around us feels the most apocalyptic, that we have to respond with resilient, healing love. It's precisely now when systemic evil and age-old brokenness threaten to bring us to ruin, 
that we have to hold each other tight and allow the veil to part, the walls to fall. What's happening, Jesus promises at the end of this week's gospel reading, is not death but birth. Something is struggling to be born. Yes, the birth pangs hurt. They hurt so appallingly much. But God is our midwife, and what God births will never lead to desolation. Yes, we are called to bear witness in the ruins, but rest assured, these birth pangs will end in joy. For books this week, Dad reviews The Undoing Project, A Friendship That Changed Our Minds by Michael Lewis. This book is a biography of the intertwined lives of Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky, psychologists who have had a profound impact on our understanding of how the mind works in judgment and decision-making. More than that, it is a biography of the partnership that the two men enjoyed for over two decades, how it worked, and, in the end, how it didn't. The work of this partnership is carefully presented for the general reader in Kahneman's recent book, Thinking Fast and Slow, which is a fascinating reading of its own. Kahneman and Versky studied countless cases where our mind fails to be rational, even when we think we are. In some cases, the outcomes can be embarrassing, but in others, say for a soldier or an airline pilot, the results can be fatal. Kahneman and Versky both grew up in Israel, coming of age during the Six-Day War. Their professional beginnings had more to do with real-world problems for the Israeli army rather than a cloistered academic setting. The two did not meet, however, until their careers were well-established and they were both in California at the time. What began as a mutual wariness quickly turned into an inseparable collaboration. In some ways, they were opposites. Tversky, confident and outgoing, Kahneman, an introvert, plagued with self-doubt. Yet together they held a mutual respect that allowed them to dive into a problem together, sometimes spending days in seclusion, where no idea, no question, or criticism was off-limits, and the results were groundbreaking. In academic circles, there would often be the question, whose original idea was it really? To which they were truly at a loss to respond. In later years, that question of originality became the seed of undoing of their partnership and their friendship. Partly because of his outgoing nature, Tversky became better known and attractive to top American universities. He was offered a professorship at Stanford on very quick turnaround. Kahneman was not. He was made a MacArthur Fellow and was elected to the National Academy. Kahneman wasn't. While neither man cared at the deepest level for these kinds of honorifics, the differences nod at Kahneman, primarily his worry about what his partner thought of him, not what the world thought. Finally, in 1996, Kahneman effectively walked out of the relationship, only to learn a few days later that his colleague was dying of cancer. The friendship was restored for the brief time that the two had together after that. Kahneman received the Nobel Prize in Economics in 2002, which he likely would have shared with Amos Tversky had the latter lived to see the day. Such a fertile partnership is in essence a gift. No one really knows how or why they developed to the point where neither party can point to the origin of an idea, though the book notes that a Harvard psychiatrist started but did not complete a study on the subject of such partnerships. But it is clear that Kahneman and Tversky seized an opportunity and made the most of it a lesson that we can all take home when the chance for a fruitful partnership presents itself with mutual respect and the highest standards. For movies this week, Dan reviews Himalaya, Kingdoms of the Sky. As the highest mountain range in the world, the Himalaya are known as the roof of the world. They stretch 1,500 miles from western Pakistan through India and then Nepal, Bhutan, and China. The Himalaya are home to ancient cultures like the village of Kibber in northern India at over 14,000 feet and Tibetan monasteries. 
There are crazy creatures like the snub-nosed monkeys with bright pink lips and the Bactrian camels with their two humps. Everything struggles to survive in a remarkably hostile climate and territory that include high-altitude deserts, Indian monsoons, and temperatures of 40 below zero. The last part of the film features the Everest Marathon that starts at 17,000 feet base camp, where the oxygen level is only half of what it is at sea level, and then, no surprise, mountaineers who summit the highest place on the planet, Mount Everest, at 29,029 feet. This one-hour documentary is a second of three episodes called Kingdoms of the Sky that were made by PBS in conjunction with the BBC. The superb production quality is just what you would expect. This really is television at its best. The other two episodes explore the Rockies and the Andes. Dan watched all three movies via streaming on the PBS website. And lastly, for poetry this week, The Place Where We Are Right by Yehuda Amichai. From the place where we are right, flowers will never grow in the spring. The place where we are right is hard and trampled like a yard, but doubts and loves dig up the world like a mole, a plow, and a whisper will be heard in the place where the ruined house once stood. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for November 18th, 2018. I'm Debbie Thomas.